Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Sleep Me. We just saw where I sent you a meme which said, in my 20s, I lived on a futon, which we both did. Yeah, we both did. In our, More like a thermorest. <laughs> in our 30s, like we had to do something else to get a little bit better sleep. And in our 40s, suddenly it was like, I had to have an eye mask and sleep Complete in a perfect place darkness. to get three hours of sleep. What we're saying is, when it gets hairy in your life later on, you need all of the support you can to max out your sleep. We organize our whole day around sleep. Yeah, and we're going through a particularly busy and stressful period of our life with our book coming out in a few months. And so we're really trying to prioritize our sleep and our Doc Pro sleep systems are a really important part of that. I've talked about this magic for a long time and that I don't overheat, can regulate my temperature. And what I end up finding is that I do sleep better. And if we see a lot of people really do struggle with temperature regulations. And that ends up having downstream consequences. I need to sleep with the window open. I need to have this cover. Don't touch me. You're too hot. Like it really is gnarly. And you and I have our own winter wonderlands. Our own universes. Ironically, we sleep at the same temperature these days. Well, only in the winter though. In the summer, it's a different world. Anyway, if you want to get some sleep support in the best possible way, head on over to sleep.me slash TRS to learn more and save off the purchase of any new Cube, Uller, or Doc Pro sleep system. So go to sleep.me slash TRS to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day. Cannot say it enough. Control your sleep. Control the temperature of your bed. Your life will change. Feel happy. Hey, everyone. So before we jump in today's episode, we just want to tell you about a project that's been almost five years in the making and something we're really excited about, if you haven't already heard. And that's our next book. It's called Built to Move. This book comes out April 4th, 2023. And you should think about it as the missing soul, like the keystone in some kind of movie where you put the jewel back into the supple leopard and you ping, the whole thing comes to life like Jumanji. <laughs> right? The new Jumaji, obviously. obviously. But the idea is we see that people struggle with figuring out where do I fit it all in and what's essential that's not necessarily exercising. Yeah. And we've really put our heart and soul into this book. And we think it's fun to read with a lot of fun stories about our lives and how we got to where we are and how we think about our own health and fitness practices in our lives. And we are just really excited to share it with you all. And Hope you check it out wherever you get your books. We could not have written this too soon. We're now approaching 50 years old and our eye is, hey, I still like to go fast and lift heavy weights and do all those things just like you do. But we also want to feel good and be durable. And this greater conversation that we have missed, like Instagram is showing us what people think fitness is, has nothing to do with how to feel better and how to live your life so you can be durable. So check out a copy wherever you buy your books. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are pleased to welcome Dave Durante. Dave is a multiple-time USA Gymnastics national champion and was part of the 2008 Beijing Olympic team. Dave has coached gymnastic teams to multiple national championships, was a lead coach for the CrossFit Gymnastics Level 1 course, where he developed the CrossFit Gymnastics Advanced course. Dave is also the co-founder of Power Monkey Fitness, where he travels the world delivering world-class knowledge and coaching to those looking to improve their movement quality and longevity by ensuring they have the proper foundation in place to always strive towards their highest capability. 
This conversation with Dave, I think, is important for a lot of reasons, from youth development to the state of gymnastics in America. But Dave gives us some reasons in this conversation to care as a middle-aged heavy man about gymnastics, yeah, aka or in my body case, control. a middle-aged mom. Right. One of the things that I, I appreciate about their approach, and remember that one of the things that's going on with his company, Power Monkey, is he has some really excellent coaches from other sports, including Olympic lifting in here. And one of the things that they believe strongly in is always coaching in progressions that allow you to progress infinitely to the very highest level. So it's not just like, hey, learn the circus trick for Instagram. It's here's a foundational skill that is infinite in its application. Yeah. And just talking to Dave inspired me to want to start to play around with some gymnastics skills again. And so I hope everyone listening will have the same feeling. Yeah. And when we define that as he does, just simple ideas of like, do I know how to tumble and roll? Can I be upside down? How do I progress? Always limited by your skill. He is a mutant, truly, surrounded by a bunch of mutants, but he has translated his mutantdom into actionable skills for everyday people. I think you are really going to enjoy our conversation with Dave. Dave, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. Thank you both for having me on. Good to be here. You're coming from Portland. Is that right? I am. I am. I am in my basement in Portland. Um, you know, I've been here for a couple of years now, but I'm still learning the area. It's still kind of not so familiar. I'm an East Coast guy for the most part. So this is still kind of new territory for me. We'll get into all of this. We have so much, Julian, as we're rolling in, we're excited to talk about a lot. You come from deep, deep cultures of movement and competition. How is the competitive movement culture in Portland? Well, I'd say, you know, Portland is a very fit city. Running is, I mean, I'm sure everybody knows Nike being based out of here, but also Adidas's uh, North American headquarters are here and Under Armour's performance, sports performance headquarters are here. There are a lot of high performing sports brands and fitness brands based out of Portland. And people just like to be outside here. I think a lot of people that aren't from Portland move here because of the outdoor culture, going outside, running, hiking, going to the beach, going to the mountains. And so um, it's a very fit city. And I really appreciate that. I, I enjoy it. And it's actually gotten me to be much more outdoorsy than I had been prior. I'm hiking more. I'm going for runs. As a gymnast, you know, I didn't run more than 76 feet down the runway of the vault runway <laughs> my entire life. So like the fact that I'm outside doing trail runs and stuff is like, whoa, what's going on with Dave? So uh, Portland has definitely exposed me to stuff that I had never done prior. Let me ask you this. Julie and I are from an outdoor community of paddlers and skiers and sort of adventure athletes, and they often don't think they need strength conditioning and movement training. Do you find that these conversations are like people are like, you're in the gym, like my gym's out there. And uh, do you find that there is that sort of disconnect? Because we're seeing that course at the top, everyone is engaged in strength and conditioning because they have to if they want to be com competitive. But sometimes we hear from our coaches in these smaller mountain communities, people are like, ah, well, I don't need to do that. Why would I do work on those things? I don't need to do, I do plenty of pull-ups when I'm out climbing. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. have you have you run into that a little bit? Uh, not so much. To be honest, people are seem to be more receptive than anything else, especially when they know maybe my background and they maybe consider me someone that's worth listening to when it comes to strength conditioning and body weight training and the value that comes along with it. So I haven't had too much pushback. What I have seen is that there's just integration on both sides because as a gymnast, I would have thought the same thing in terms of doing outdoor conditioning myself. And now looking at it 
in the rearview mirror, I wish someone would have pushed me in areas of training that I didn't do when I was an athlete either. So I think it's a little bit of a two-way street in terms of, hey, I, I could have become a better athlete by doing some of the things and implementing some of the tools that you guys use in your training and vice versa. So I, I want to go way back into time, but I just want to set the stage. You have two daughters, am I correct? That's right. Yeah. You've got uh, two one, little daughters. Yeah. One just turned six and the other one's two and a half, uh, soon to be three. You're in the thick of it. You know, one of our favorite subjects is youth athletics and training kids and a lot of the misconceptions around that, much of which I think you will get a very up and close view once your daughters get a little older and actually start competing in sports, assuming they do. I think you, like us, will probably be shocked at what you see out there a little bit. But I know you obviously are a former Olympian. And in order to get to that place, I assume that you were intensively training as a little kid, starting as a little kid. And so I just, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got into gymnastics and what that was actually like training as a young person to what your experience was like. Sure. Uh, well, I was Olympic team member. I didn't compete in Beijing. I was part of the team. So I just like to make sure everyone's aware. Olympic team member, not Olympian. It's a distinction that I feel most comfortable with in terms of bio. But yeah, I did it my whole life. Uh, it is actually a little topic that I think, Kelly, we spoke about last time you were on our podcast about some of the things that you've gone through with your kids and routes, because it's something that I'm trying to navigate now. You're right. But uh, starting out, I started gymnastics when I was six years old, but I played a ton of sports. Uh, sports was just a part of our household. I had, I have an older brother and a younger sister, and my father played soccer at a fairly high level in Italy. My father grew up in Rome and played for some teams out there. So soccer was a big part of our household. I wrestled for a long time. I played baseball. I played basketball. I just love sports. I love moving. I love being on teams. I love individual sports. I love all of it. Is that typical for gymnasts early that they play? Maybe it's different for yeah, boys. Yeah, because I feel like that's girls. so not in connection with my perception. Like my perception is, man, like in this order to do. be a high level competitive gymnast, you have to specialize like at age four. Yeah. Is that, is that more and was, for, and was that, there pressure more there for girls than boys or yeah. is get into that? I think for girls, just because what we've seen historically, which is changing now, historically, female gymnasts tend to peak at a younger age. You know, you have, your 15, 16, 17-year-olds winning the Olympic Games. Again, this is in the process of changing when we're seeing a lot more higher-level athletes in college and post-college. But that required uh, female gymnasts to start younger and specialize earlier. I don't think that's the right route, to be honest with you. And I think what you end up seeing is that there are so many athletes that do it that you have a flood of athletes within a particular space that are in that pool of athletes that can succeed. But the number that actually do is so infinitesimally small that you get this skewed view that starting young leads to success, where you disregard or you end up not viewing it from the perspective of the majority of the percentage of athletes that have gone through it that injured themselves really early and couldn't pursue it or didn't get that college scholarship or wasn't able to you know, get college paid for or went on to do something else and dropped out of the sport because they were mentally drained at the age of 12 years old. So I think you get a skewed perspective that's thinking that at four, you need to specialize and that leads to great success. I think a better way to do it is, you know, I'm viewing it from my perspective because it led to a more healthy mentality towards sport where I played a ton. I understood, I understood what it meant to be part of a team from a young age. I understood kind of what collectively you could do to succeed. And I know gymnastics is considered an individual sport, but I consider it a team sport. 
everything that I've done in the sport has been part of a team from growing up in Jersey and competing to my collegiate experience to being part of Team USA. And I think it allowed me to understand what it meant to have a life outside of the sport and to be able to do things, you know, with your your friends outside of the sport and to have a balanced life. And I think those athletes that are specializing so early and you only see the success stories, success stories, you end up getting a really skewed perspective on what it actually means to get to that level. I just want to make a note that um, I appreciate your distinction about being an alternate, but I also want to point out that being selected in any capacity for any national team. team or national team, the chances of that are so infinitesimally small and so show what a total boss of an athlete you are. Thank so you. I just, you know, to me, that's pretty epic. Thank you. Thank you. It was quite an experience. That's for sure. I think everyone skips over the fact that you were sort of this little gymnast at a little small university here south of us called Stanford, which is a pretty extraordinary achievement in itself in their athletic program. Do you think it's a reasonable goal for people to think college? I think everyone thinks Olympics national team for specific sports. And my sport, you know, was whitewater paddling, but our marquee event is the Olympics, right? There's like four years of silence Olympics and (laughs) unless you're deep in the sport, but you know, and there's not even college paddling. Was that, or do people understand that there's a great opportunity to play and be a gymnast at university? This is a really interesting topic and it's something that's kind of top of mind for me uh, right now as the sport of men's gymnastics nationally is dying. The number of collegiate programs that are left is about 14 that are offered college scholarships. And every year, it seems like another program is being dropped. Actually, we're at a point right now where if one more drops, NCAA will have the ability to no longer recognize men's gymnastics as an official NCAA sport. Wow. Wow. So going to the club level. I had no idea. Yeah, we're we're kind of on the brink. And so I'm helping Stanford right now um, on kind of the alumni board to assist with making sure that Stanford has some ability to move forward as a program, either whether that's an NCAA recognized D1 sport or as a, a viable club program moving forward. But for me, this is actually one of the reasons why I've tried to stay so closely tied to the sport, because I love gymnastics. I think it has so much value for growth, not only to achieve Olympic medals or collegiate stardom, whatever that might be, but just to have a great foundation to any sport you go on to do. And I, so I just love when I'm teaching a course or teaching someone that didn't grow up with a sport and they tell me one of two things, either I can't wait to put my kids in the sport of gymnastics or I wish my parents would have put me in the sport at a younger age. That to me tells me that we're doing something right in terms of trying to grow the sport. And I'm talking specifically about men's gymnastics. Women's gymnastics is a different world, especially collegiately. It's blowing, it's, it's enormous. You know, they get 10,000 spectators per sport, UCLA, Georgia, Alabama, Utah, LSU, these these programs are just enormous. They're on par with, you know, the, the basketball teams and in some cases the football, not, not the football teams in terms of attendance, but they are actually revenue generating sports collegiately, which is an anomaly. Almost every sport collegiately outside of football and sometimes basketball loses money. But women's gymnastics actually has a tendency in some of these cases to make money. So they're an anomaly. We're trying to to use them as a model to say what can we do different on the men's side. Uh, but I know I'm off on a tangent here, but I'm just trying to bring some recognition to the fact that men's gymnastics collegiately, while it is, it is still a viable option for a lot of the kids whose parents are putting their you know uh, them into gymnastics at a young age, it's becoming less so. We only have 6.3 scholarships available per program, 
So, you know, you divvy that up amongst the, the, the number of schools that are left. That's only a handful of kids nationally that actually can get scholarships. And so it is something that we're trying to, to make more of a viable option for those kids that want to go on and compete at a higher level. What are you guys doing specifically to try to keep the door open and schools having programs? Like, give us more details. I find this so interesting. I actually had no idea. I mean, I am aware. I love, a, I love yeah, the I am aware nature a, that this yeah. women's sport is actually nursing the men's sport. Well, and I, you know, I am aware at a macro level, you know, how a lot of sports are getting cut from colleges mm-hmm. and they're rethinking non-revenue generating sports. And, you know, I know there's a lot of upheaval overall in college sports, but because I'm not involved, I really had no idea. Like, I was actually just shocked to hear it's a dying sport from your perspective. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you guys are thinking and how you can revitalize it? Because I mean, as a spectator, I will say, I mean, I am definitely a once every four years um, men's gymnastic spectator, but I genuinely enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate that. (laughs) I mean, I think one of the reasons why gymnastics is so popular during the Olympics is because I think, I mean, I did gymnastics because I thought of myself as a superhero, you know, being able to do things that, most people on a daily basis just aren't able to do. And you're like, wow, like you can, you can fly through the air. I can fly and, uh, you know, land perfectly and make the impossible look possible and all of these things. And I think that's the, the cool aspect of gymnastics, why the viewer every four years finds it interesting to watch these amazing um, skills being done effortlessly. Uh, but what are we doing? I mean, it, it's really a daunting task, to be honest with you. And there's no real easy answer, especially with the landscape within NCA changing with the new NIL rules kind of coming into effect, it changes things pretty immensely. How does that change for you guys? Well, I mean, the, the budgets of the NCAA programs are fairly fixed and the amount of money that's given to non-revenue generating sports is minimal, you know, just enough to be able to having operating budget, fund a head coach, maybe an assistant coach, and then the scholarships are a third component there. Those are the three basic pillars of any program is the scholarships, the operating budget and the coaching staff. And so uh, what ends up happening now is that athletes will start dictating some of the budget to be negotiated as part of coming to a school. And so if you're having to pay an athlete to be part of a program, it ends up negating some of the, the capital that would be allocated to a specific program outside of the top tier ones, uh, the footballs, the basketballs, and you know, in some cases, a baseball, but it's primarily uh, football, basketball. But at Stanford, what we've done as an alumni group is we created an endowment. Uh, Stanford, for the first time ever, is allowing uh, smaller endowments to be started that can be added to over time. So we collectively initiated an endowment program that has a minimal amount. You know, the amount of money that we need to endow the program is substantial. It's substantial. And so we're starting small and trying to create a fund that will allow for Stanford Men's Gymnastics to have a presence at the school, even if NCA NCA drops Men's Gymnastics completely, or in the case that Stanford says that we don't want to have a Men's Gymnastics program anymore, that Stanford Gymnastics in some capacity will still have some life. So that kid that's in high school right now might still have a gym to go and train at, still be able to put that block S on their chest and still be able to represent Stanford in a different capacity into the future. I think that's really smart. Actually, I know a little bit about those endowments because I actually was a rower at Cal. I learned when I was there that the men's rowing program at Cal has the largest endowment of any rowing program in the whole country. So you'd think it would be like Harvard or Yale or one of those OG rowing programs, but it's not for whatever reason, I think partly because Charles Schwab was a rower at Cal. There you go. Yeah, you get a you get a mega donor in there. Yeah, one mega donor and you know that money sits there for a long time and grows. And so it's interesting because that program 
will live on forever thanks to that endowment. So, I mean, that that is actually a genius idea to sort of create that for smaller, for other programs. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask We're, we're trying. Me... We're trying. It's not a, a definite fix. It's There's no perfect answer to this. And we're, we're looking at it from a lot of different angles. And my daily job within PowerMonkey is to just build awareness around gymnastics too. So I think we're just trying to create avenues for people to find a love for the sport. And hopefully that'll kind of a grassroots approach to kind of uh, continue to grow it. But we are doing it at the collegiate level and the national team level as well. So let me switch directions a little bit. And I think this is going to be a, t- a couple part question, but when in your athletic career did you start doing more CrossFit-like training? Secondarily, do you think in the way that it did for Olympic lifting that the fact of CrossFit gyms being everywhere and popular has done something positive for the sport of gymnastics, right? Because I have to think until CrossFit hit the airwaves, just like with Olympic lifting, you know, most people were not attempting to do bar muscle ups and ring dips and handstands and muscle ups. Right. So anyway, that was a two part question. But, you know, tell me about your own experience in finding CrossFit or functional training or whatever it it is. Uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it relatively brief. I got back from Beijing in China and um, I had blown out my knee about six months prior and I didn't tell anybody. So only my coach knew. So when I got back from China, I had to have knee surgery right away. So I had surgery at the OTC and I also signed a contract to go and coach Stanford. So um, I moved back to Stanford from the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and uh, was assistant coach at Stanford. And while I was rehabbing and coaching the team, I found CrossFit. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next with my training. I wasn't being competitive anymore. I went from being an elite athlete to, you know, what are you now? Just coaching the guys every day. And I started doing my own CrossFit type workouts at the Stanford Gymnastics Gym in the Ford Center every day. I went online. I got bored with the routine that I had created and I found CrossFit. And I started doing some main site workouts end of 2008, beginning 2009 in the gym before the guys would come in and kind of grew from there. I started to fall in love with this, uh, the programming that I found on main site and doing them on my own and and, uh, kind of seeing what the scores were being put up in the message board and stuff like that. So I kind of um, started out fairly early, but not even an affiliate, just at the Stanford gym doing it on my own. And uh, I fell in love with the structure and, uh, you know, being a competitive athlete, competitive person. I just love the idea of being able to uh, challenge myself in a way that I didn't think was possible prior. The second part of that question in terms of did CrossFit assist in terms of creating awareness and a love for the sport of gymnastics in the way that it has for weightlifting, I think it's still happening. That part of it is going to take a lot more time for gymnastics because of the challenge of gymnastics. And uh, there's no disrespect to weightlifting. I, and weightlifting, I mean, my legs, if I showed you my legs, you'd know that I have no ability to do anything on the weightlifting <laughs> world. So I respect anyone who is... Yeah, but uh, you can do an iron cross. <laughs> you can do an iron cross, yeah. Uh, but weightlifting has two movements that can be broken down endlessly But what we've seen is that CrossFit has allowed for those athletes that grew up with CrossFit or found CrossFit somewhat later in life to devote some time to weightlifting and compete and go to the American Open or go to World Championships or even compete at the Olympic Games. You know, Tia going from competing in the Games two weeks later, going to Rio and competing in the Olympic Games. That's an incredible Incredible. feat. It's insane. Uh, It's absolutely insane. But to think that a CrossFit athlete is going to compete in the Olympic Games in gymnastics is just Less not so. possible. No. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just not possible. And it's it's the idea yeah. that 
the level of competency and the level of devotion that you need to have, and also starting early to be able to create some foundation around the movement patterns and what you need to be able to do at a higher level is going to take a long time. Not to say that it won't happen, uh, especially because we're seeing CrossFitters start so much earlier. It is their first sport now. They're not coming from baseball or basketball or gymnastics and finding it later on. We're having these athletes that are starting at eight and doing CrossFit Kids and starting it as their primary sport early on. It will take some time, but what we are seeing is that people are now interested in the basics of gymnastics, creating shapes, getting into inverted positions, and wanting to hang rings in their gyms or working, working on bar muscle-ups. And to me, that's a starting point. And I know there's a lot of people in both weightlifting and gymnastics that have always looked at that as you're bastardizing our sport. What are you doing to our beautiful movements? I have never, ever viewed it as that. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why I've always connected so well with Chad Vaughn, who's, you know, my counterpart within Power Monkey on the lifting side, is that we both viewed people who didn't grow up with our sports and finding interest in it as an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to help and help understand where the faults are and how we can set a better foundation around those movements and help them grow and understand and find a love for the things that we found a love in at six and eight years old. And so to me, it's incredible to have this cohort of people around the world that are interested in even if it's a, at a foundational level in something I've devoted the last 35 years to. Let me ask you this. Would you define gymnastics for everyone? And the follow-up question is, what is essential? What are the essential blocks out of gymnastics that a dilettante adult should care about? I mean, oh, defining gymnastics. I don't know if that's super easy. I would say just body weight competency as like a, a really global way to approach it so that it's not so specific to competitive gymnastics. I think that exactly. sometimes gets lost where you need to say, okay, you need to be able to do, you know, a high bar routine or beam routine. I think that, that that's such a small fraction of the population that you think less about the competitive side of gymnastics and more about body weight competency, spatial awareness, the discipline that comes along with consistency around chipping away at movements over time and eventually seeing that final piece of art that comes with years and years of doing the same thing over and over again and, and chipping away. But the second part of that question, can you repeat that second part of the question? Just like what, what's essential? Yeah. What are the building, building blocks that an adult should take, see gymnastics, not get sucked into like watching Lasha clean and jerk, you know, 500 pounds. Yeah. Is that, you're like, I can't relate to that. I can't relate to watching people on the pommel horse, you know? For sure. So what, what's essential for, what's in gymnastics for me as a middle-aged guy who's over 200 pounds, by the way? Absolutely. Well, <laughs> looking good. You're looking spelled. You, you hold it well. It's our first phase of within Power Monkey, what we call our creation of body shapes. This is the part that's fundamental to everything that comes later down the road. And it's where we start everyone in our training programs. And creation of correct body shapes is broken down into two fundamental pieces. One is a stronger core. Everything that encompasses your midline, you know, your abs, your hip flexors, your obliques, uh, rotation and lateral work, posterior chain, being able to manipulate your core will allow for more efficient movement, better movement patterns later down the road. So we recommend people working on core-specific movements on a daily basis. Can you give us an example? Like, what is one of those? Yeah, so we actually put up a five to 10-minute core workout every single day on our app just to introduce people to it. You're, you're not saying, like, people just need more crunches. That's not no, what you're saying. No, 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 no. Positional awareness. <laughs> Positional <Thank> awareness, <laughs> yeah. So um, the two shapes that most people kind of associate with gymnastics are the hollow and the arch, right? Because they're so used at a higher level in terms of how you're kipping and swinging on the bar or how you're going from 
a long position to a short position to roll or flip or twist. And so being able to control the hollow and the arch will allow for a lot more of the higher level skills to be developed. So that, that's kind of what we're trying to create awareness around from that hollow and that arch and then creating some lateral rotational components along with it. So yes, it's not just doing crunches every day. Uh, I hope that's not how it came across. It very much is a fundamental understanding of using and uh, understanding all components of your, your midline. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Hey guys, we just want to take a little break in this podcast episode to actually tell you about one of our own products, and that's our Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach. Yeah, the app literally is the first place you should go if you're trying to feel better, if you're trying to solve an old movement-related problem, if you're just trying to not be as sore from your workout. There is so much going on in this app. We have a mobility test that is comprehensive and designed by Kelly Starrett himself. It's pretty good. So you can figure out what your biggest limitations are and start to work on that. There are sports-specific mobilizations if you want to try to lift more or Fact. run faster. There is a pain area. And we even have a ton of bonus content. You can do challenges around squat and ankle and a bunch of other specific body parts so you can just generally get more Jessa, supple you're and killing awesome. It. You should talk about this app more often. <laughs> we started the original Mobility Project back in 2010 trying to help people solve problems for themselves. We think that every human being should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. And we want you to be able to engage in some self-care in a really res reasonable, responsible way. One of our favorite parts of it, daily mobility. You have a 10, 20, or 30-minute follow-along with me. If you just have a ball and a roller, think you want to feel better, move better, play along. I mean, we really feel like that's the base camp practice, then you can add in what you need. We're really proud of this and what we've created here, and we think you should give it a try. Back. Head on over to the readystate.com slash trial and use code POD20 for 20% off your first month. And just FYI, including your two-week free trial, that's literally six weeks for $11.99. You can't beat that. There's so much amazing content to help you feel better and move better for $11.99. In the words of our uh, podcast producer, bananas. I was just watching a bunch of very high-level, very accomplished athletes work on an expression of a hollowed position, just doing a rollout and seeing, right? So just grabbing like a, an evil wheel or, a, you know, one of the frames that they make that you roll out on. And I saw, you can do it with a barbell, but just fundamental non-understanding of how to control that in space, all the compensations and breaks. And so you really are speaking to something that I see. I was like, wow, here we have some of the really, really talented athletes who have really have never been taught how to control their body under this kind of, you know, extension load as their body gets long and they just boom, default into these kind of origami shapes. Oh, yeah, so absolutely. I appreciate that. And, and I'm not saying it's easy at all. In fact, a lot of a uh, quick little story like um, when I first got to Stanford, I, I blew my knee out for the first time. My first day at Stanford, I flew off. I got into the gym from Jersey. I went <laughs> oh my to the gym. God. My first day, my first turn, I fell and I blew my knee out. And it was like, obviously, devastating for me to start my college career out that way. But my coach was like, okay, we're going to use this opportunity to one, get you strong. So I was a relatively weak gymnast when I started and it became actually one of the stronger guys in the country towards the end of my career. But he, he also said, I want to, we got to fix your handstand. And I was like, devastated. I thought my handstand was really solid. It was actually one of my pride and joys coming into college that I thought I had a good line. I did not have a good line. 
And there's a big difference between understanding how to control your midline and how to create good shapes within being inverted or being upright and not having the awareness of what all of those little components are doing. So for someone that's using a wheel or an ab roller or whatever it might be, they probably have very little understanding of what all those little fundamental components are not only feeling like, but also looking like. So I spent that whole year manipulating and working on small little adjustments, small little changes that turned into allowing me to have a handstand to really be proud of. And one of the better handstands within the gymnastics community. But it's not something that's fixed right away. And you need a lot of time and effort and eyeballs on you to really be able to understand those small manipulations to be able to get your core to a place where I can place my body where I need it to be in any moment in time. And uh, I think a high-level athlete will be able to do that statically, essentially saying, okay, if I'm standing within a position, I know where to put myself if I have the time to do it. An elite athlete will be able to do it dynamically, meaning if something happens where they need to make a change, they can make an adjustment and go back to that correct shape in an instant. And that takes a ton of time and a ton of awareness to be able to make those dynamic adjustments. So an elite, uh, an elite athlete just has that capability to do it through time uh, a little bit more rapidly. That reminds me of how Kelly always describes Rich Froning as an athlete that he gets and why he has been so successful or part of the reason why is that he gets better when he is under stress. You know, his movement and position actually gets better the heavier the weights, the t more tired he is, right? And, and that's often not the case, right? You see a lot of athletes fall apart in that point. So I love the way you describe that because it seems like that really is sort of this tipping point of becoming elite ability to be that dynamic in those moments. I really like what you're saying because I'm sure you as well who, you know, you have kids, you're out in the world interacting with like, quote unquote, regular people. There is this great myth that the core and doing sit-ups are the only two things that go together. So I appreciate that Let's you guys be honest, are out there. It's, it's about looking good naked. And that's fine, you know, but it's just interesting how it's just one of those things that has stuck in the greater consciousness that like core equals sit-ups and that's the sum total of what you do. So um, you've mentioned it a few times, but for our listeners who are not familiar, can you tell us a little bit more about Power Monkey Fitness and how you business, get started what you guys Chad. are doing. Obviously, I know, you know, you, your partners with Chad and that's been an, an awesome relationship. So give us a little backstory on the business side. Well, Chad's a component <laughs> here. Uh, again, this is a, a story that maybe some of your listeners might have heard, but it all started with the 2010 Victoria's Secret show, believe it or not. <laughs> Did not see that coming. I was living in Italy at the time. Uh, I'm an Italian citizen. I was living there after coaching at Stanford and I moved back to New York and I got asked by my now partner, Shane Garrity, who is also a collegiate gymnast and stuntman and performer in New York City, to perform at the Victoria's Secret Show in 2010. They were looking for a bunch of gymnasts to tumble on the stage and do all these gymnastics movements while the models were walking down the runway. Is there a YouTube video of this somewhere? Oh, yeah. There oh, my goodness. Okay. Okay. Because, I mean, that's what we'll be doing the yeah. moment we hang up. I, I, highly, I highly recommend. <laughs> 2010 Victoria's Secret Show, gymnast, just type that in and... I get a lot of FaceTime. <laughs> I get a lot of FaceTime, which I'm extraordinarily proud of. And my wife hates that I bring it up all the time, but I just like to mention that it was before I met my wife. <laughs> so it was before that happened. But uh, yeah, you can definitely watch this video on YouTube. So anyway, uh, that's where me and my uh, my partner with Power Monkey met. 
and our first idea was just to, you know, we had both been doing CrossFit and we had the idea for our ring thing, which in, in the gymnastics world, it's normally known as a dream machine. It's a 50-50 device to help people work on good, technical, strict movements on rings. Most gymnasts, you go to a hardware store, you put a bunch of shit together and you, you hang it up in the gym and it's just poorly made. And so we wanted to make one that was very well made that could be marketed to the functional fitness CrossFit community. And so we made one. We shopped it around to a bunch of different equipment manufacturers and Power Monkey Fitness was an existing company down in Florida. And they made rigs and they made a bunch of other equipment. And they were the ones that were most interested in helping us make the ring thing. And so we became partners with them. We started making ring things. I started being a traveling salesman. I was traveling to CrossFit gyms around the country. Just We had a ring thing, so you know. What's that? We had a ring thing. We had We had a ring thing. Yeah, you can get another one if you need one. Uh, I'm happy to send you one. But it's it's a great tool. It's a great tool for people to work on. We were just at Wadapalooza over the weekend, and uh, we had a bunch of people, you know, we had it set up and a bunch of people testing it out that hadn't seen it in a while. But yeah, that was our first little piece of apparatus. I sold my first three to uh, Julie Fouché and Arbor years and years ago, almost you know over a decade ago now. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be a huge hit. We're going to make it with this thing. And of course, it doesn't work out that way. And, uh, you know, uh, still tons sitting in the warehouse that need to be sold. But it is a great piece of apparatus. And that led us to wanting to expand the business into our Power Monkey camp. And uh, this is kind of where Chad came in. I had done a few seminars with Chad uh, across at Milford. Uh, I got to give a sh- shout out to Jay Lydon out there who's been in the community for, you know, since uh, the early 2000s. Yeah. His affiliate's been around forever. And he introduced me. We love that human. Oh yeah, Jay, Jay's the best, and uh, you know he was the first one that had me and Jay, me and Chad come out together to do a seminar at his gym years ago, and had the idea to put Power Monkey Camp together, which is a full week long adult fitness camp, Fitness Disneyland, out in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. It's a kids gymnastics camp that I've been going to for close to two decades now. That's owned by two Olympians and John Rothsberg and John McCready, and I was like, why can't we just use this for adults when it's not being used in the fall and the spring? And so. We made our first Power Monkey Camp actually 10 years ago. This is our 10-year anniversary this year. I'm really uh, excited. Congratulations. To, uh, to have our 10-year anniversary this year. And we just bring people into the middle of nowhere, the woods in Tennessee, and we train and we learn about each other's backgrounds. We've had people from over 40 countries come out, bring in about 100 participants, and another 50 coaches, staff, and guests. It's an incredible week. It's my third baby. It's something I'm incredibly proud of. And... Uh, I mean, I invite everybody to come out. You know, Kelly, we've invited you out. We, we really would love to have you out, be uh, be able to experience it. But it is kind of unique within the CrossFit community and kind of what most people know us for within uh, the CrossFit community is our Power Monkey Camp. And is it for primarily CrossFit type enthusiasts who attend? Or do you find that, you know, people find you and they're gymnastics training curious and show up? Like, what's the demographic of people who come? I'd say it's heavily skewed towards the CrossFit community. Uh, Mostly, you know, athletes, coaches, um, owners, the backgrounds are vast. Most people will look at our videos and think, I'm not capable of going because, you know, so-and-so athlete was there. We bring in those guest athletes to train and hang out, but it really is meant for the beginner and intermediate level athlete. We've had 14 and 15 year old athletes come out with chaperones. We've had people in their 70s and 80s come out and train with us. We've had people that have never kicked up into a handstand, never picked up a barbell, never tried a kettlebell swing in their life, never been on a rower and leave camp crying because it was the best experience of their lives. And so 
Camp is meant to be as inclusive as you can possibly imagine, not only to the athletic background, but also to, you know, the everyday athlete, everyday person that are just looking to to sync up with like-minded people for an entire week. We know that taking off for an entire week is difficult for people, but we're on to our 20 and 19th and 20th camp this year because the model works and people who are able to come. Uh, it's a life-changing event for a lot of people, and it's been life-changing for me for sure. The two most important influential sports on my understanding of how the body works and what are what is fundamental and root positioning has been gymnastics and Olympic lifting. Those two disciplines have taught me more about what the shoulder does in a short lever or a long lever position, bent or straight, or what, what is happening with the trunk. Why are Olympic lifting and gymnastics such good partners? Like that, it seems like a very strange, you know, <laughs> fellowship unless you truly sort of begin to nerd out and grok the the differences. But can you talk a little bit about why that's such a potent partnership of skills for people to learn? You know, you're right that it, you would never think that they would pair up well together. And you know, the first time I hung out with Chad, I'd be like, I dislike this guy so much. I'm just joking, obviously, but it was, I would never pick up a barbell really ever in gymnastics training. And it was such a mistake. It was such a mistake in terms of training because the value that I see now, it's something that we encourage all of our athletes and all of the next generation of aspiring gymnasts to do in the right capacity because of the value that it has to becoming a more capable athlete overall. I think there are so many similarities in terms of the mobility component that is needed to be able to achieve success on both sides. And that was something that I didn't touch on earlier in terms of the creation of the shapes. We talked a lot about core, but the mobility is the secondary component. Being able to get your body into the shape that you need to allow for efficiency and not allow compensation to happen. And weightlifters, Chad always likes to bring up, are the second most mobile athletes at the Olympic Games after gymnasts. And the mobility that comes along with being a capable, competent, confident weightlifter falls in line with the same things that we see on the gymnastics side. And I think that's one of the reasons why we align so well is because positional awareness is so important. And I think one of the things that we do really well with Power Monkey is you can go to any seminar, right? You can go to a seminar and have incredible coaches there for the entire weekend. You have a great gymnastics coach, you have a great weightlifting coach, great PTs, whatever it might be. But after 10 years of working together, what we've been able to do is create synergy within the way that we teach. So if you come to a gymnastics seminar, it's going to better your weightlifting because you're going to hear things that translate into what Chad and Mike and Vanessa and Cheryl and our, all of our weightlifting teacher uh, coaches are going to talk about in their sessions and vice versa. When you go to the weightlifting stations, when you go work on your, your bottom squat with Chad or when you work on your clean and jerk with Vanessa and Cheryl or you go work on your snatch with Mike, you're going to hear things that are going to translate into a better position in your handstand or into a better support position on rings. And the ability to create synergy in terms of how we teach has allowed us to all become better coaches and has allowed the experience to working within PowerMonkey or a camp to be enhanced because they're not individual sessions. They work harmoniously. They work together to create a better overall experience and better all overall athlete. So I, I am incredibly grateful for the fact that I've been able to find weightlifting later in my life because it's allowed me to become a better gymnastics coach. Dave just name dropped some insanely talented athletes. Just wanted everyone to know that <laughs> casually. Cheryl, three-time Olympian. Cheryl's a freaking badass. If you don't know Cheryl Hayworth, please do some research on Cheryl. Three-time U.S. Olympian, Olympic bronze medalist, youth world record holder. 
She is one of the most accomplished and impressive athletes you will ever come across. And she is absolutely amazing. Amen. And I'm just grateful that she's part of our staff. Shout out to her. So after owning a CrossFit gym for 17 years and having brand new people who maybe don't have a strong athletic background come into the door every single day, I think the two things that they feared the most were one, working with barbells because people then and now still have, you know, this sort of weird feeling about barbells if they haven't come from some kind of athletic tradition. And then inversions, aka handstands. People find doing handstands to be like terrifying and very uncomfortable and really pushing their boundary as a human and their physical ability. What do you think it is about the handstand that is so scary for people who don't have a background in athletics or gymnastics? And why do you think that movement is important? Because we believe it's important. We do think people need to go upside down every so often. Our kids um, do handstands part of their training. Love yeah. it. And these days, you know, all I do is a handstand against a wall. That's, you know, as a 50-year-old woman, like that's good for me, but I still appreciate the importance of it. So tell us a little bit about what you think about that. Thank you for that. that. movement in particular. Yeah, I, I, I love handstands. You know, um, it's something I have gravitated towards after I retired. It's, it's a movement pattern that I was pretty good at and I've gotten better since I retired, which is kind of interesting. But I think it has a ton of value. But before you get into that part of it, the first part of your question, just it being intimidating or scary for a lot of people is very real. And we come across that uh, nearly a daily basis whenever I'm working with a group, come to camp and I teach the handstand station at camp. So I see it very regularly. And I think the first part is, you know, if you don't have a coach in your gym that's that can break down the movement of a handstand, you can exacerbate the fear factor by just saying, you know, just kick up into the wall and and just hold it or, you know, do a wall walk and hope for the best. And that's a really poor approach to creating a level of competence, competency and, and confidence for that person. An easy way to think about this is never thinking of a handstand as all or nothing. It's not I, either I have a handstand or I don't have a handstand. What we have to understand are there are more progressions and more ways to be able to understand how to effectively get the person to understand what it's like to be upside down without getting them fully inverted. And I think this is a key component to working on handstands is working on handstands does not mean you have to get upside down. This is a really key component to the way that I teach. There are positional exercises, there are stability exercises, and there are strength exercises to building a well-rounded handstand. I call this the handstand triumvirate. All three of these types of handstand exercise need to be worked on together if you want to achieve a higher level handstand where you're not just kicking up and hoping to survive, right? Most of the time people kick up the first time and just don't die. I don't care if I'm breathing. I don't care if, you know, what my toes are doing, if my knees are taking it, whatever it is. Don't tell me a technical piece. I'm just trying to survive here. So what we try to do is create pockets of exercises, positional exercises, stability exercises, strengthening exercises that might not be fully inverted so that people can start creating a stepping stone process to getting more confident and capable once we start getting them upside down. Another side of it is understanding that kicking up against the wall is a starting point. And I know that this might seem even more kind of shocking to listeners thinking, you want me to do something even more advanced, like a freestanding or a handstand on parallettes, or maybe even one day working towards what we call the highest level version of any movement, right? We're always trying to put progressions in place that work towards the highest level version of that movement so that we don't get caught into a box or create a situation where we're exposed in terms of our learning process. So on the handstand, highest level version would be something like a one-arm handstand or maybe even thinking about doing a freestanding handstand on rings or swinging rings. I know that's laughable to a lot of people out there that are just trying to get inverted for the first time, 
But understanding that trajectory gives you the stepping stone process to understand what I need to do next. What's the next progression in this stepping stone process? So what we do is say, okay, where are you now? Where is the end goal? And here are a thousand progressions along the way to be able to achieve this in a way where you can go from point one to point two confidently. I also think that working in groups and working with partners and spotters is a critical component to this process. Most of the time, you know, you're in a gym, you're, you're an affiliate owner, you see the same people come into each of your classes on a daily basis. You know, people have their best friends that they like to train with. Their network is within their gym. They need to take advantage of that more. It's one of the things that we've done in gymnastics endlessly, creating spotters, creating a group of athletes that work together, that are comfortable getting hands-on with each other, so that you can expose yourself to progressions that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise on your own. And this is one of the things that we teach endlessly. How do we become a better spotter? Working with the people that we see on a daily basis to create a level of comfort and confidence that the person trusts the ability to get upside down and that person spotting them can safely put them through the positions. Now, does that take time? Yes. But it's the way that we do it in the gymnastics and it's a highly recommended way for people to become more confident with getting inverted. Lisa, Juliet, you're going to be spotting my backflip later on. My excuse me, yes. staying back. We've tuck. all tried to spot Kelly, and I'll say it's um, hazardous. I for us. love no, it's hazardous for. <laughs> I love all of that, and I love that you know people because I think of our lack of classical movement training early on. Like if we look at the gymnasium around you know the turn of the century, even stall bars were everywhere. Oh, I have in my the, my living room. I have a set in my living room. That, pe- that people had basic tumbling. Like I think we think gymnastics rings is, or the, you know, the parallel bars is, is gymnastics, but learning how to forward somersault, learning how to fall backwards. These are just such crucial skills that sometimes get lost. When I originally did my first level one, I did a half day of gymnastics training. It was the first time I had had any, I'm going to put, put in quotation marks, formal training, but I had to learn how to do a whole lot of things. And it was so interesting to me to see what my how prepared I was to learn these skills based on my movement history. Some things I was good at, some things I was, you know, had no idea what my butt did. We weren't good at any of those. (laughs) I know. (laughs) One of the things that I think we struggle with globally now is that we have such intense, powerful movement cultures inside training environments that people never leave the gym and go expand that outwards. They never go apply their fitness or their skills. It's just re- very much recursive training. I do the skills, so I can do the skills, so I can do more of the skill. Do you find that gymnasts, because I think early on, one of the things I knew was like, if I'd been a gymnast, I would have been a better athlete. I didn't know why even until I got into gymnastics and started to understand some of the positions and shapes and transfers. But do you feel like gymnasts at all sort of our better movement learners outside? And how do we do a better job of, of getting people to realize we're training for something, not just more thrusters? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I think gymnasts are really good at understanding how to move their body. So when they're exposed to a movement pattern that requires them to use their body, they're capable of picking things up very quickly. What I have noticed is that those athletes that started with gymnastics and only gymnastics are early on, they are terrible at hand-eye coordination, ball sports. Fact. Uh, terrible. Breathing hard. Suffering. Breathing hard. Suffering. suffering. Yeah, well, suffering, but also like you throw, ask, ask a gymnast to throw a baseball. Ask a gymnast to hit a ball or hit a, bas- hit a three-pointer. It's laughable a lot of times because it's a moving pattern and it's an aspect of training that they've never been exposed to. And so 
I think moving their body, they're great at, but it's one of those things that, like I said early on, exposure to a variety of sports will allow you to become better at multiple things. So I think it's a fantastic foundation for what most people are lacking, but it can also kind of lead to a very kind of straight line approach to just what your body is capable of doing and not so much when something is in hand. So before we let you go, I I just want to ask you some parent, at least one parent question. We definitely, I think because we owned a CrossFit gym, appreciated the athleticism and body awareness one learns in gymnastics. And so our kids each did gymnastics when they were real little for a couple of years. And, you know, I mean, it's obvious within two seconds that their body types are not like gymnastic body types, but, you know, we still appreciated the foundation of gymnastics and put them in gymnastics when they were little. Do you, for parents who are raising kids and want to know like how to set them on their athletic journey, would you recommend that as an early stage training for little kids? Are your kids doing gymnastics? Mm -hmm. What's your approach as a a dad? A hundred, hundred percent. I think gymnastics is an incredible foundation and not competitive gymnastics. I'm saying more just being in the gym, learning how to roll, all the things that Kelly was talking about in terms of some of the foundational components of good movement. I put my daughter in gymnastics at four months. She wasn't allowed to go until a little older than than that, but they let me put her in. And so uh, she was just a little blob uh, with her leotard on for uh, the first diaper on for the first few months. But just being in the gym and uh, understanding those things, I think went a long way in her being able to be a better mover. You know, she does wall walks now and she does handstand kickups and she's in the gym pretty often. We do have a pandemic allowed us to create a gym at our house here where we have some mats and we have a beam and a, a lot of smaller kids' gymnastics equipment, stall bars, rings, a climbing rope. And to them, we just, we make it play. You know what I mean? It's not so structured as it is in the gym. We want them to really enjoy it. And I think that becomes a big turnoff for people that might be good early on, but the structure is such that it, it ends up becoming a turnoff for them early on. I think you have to create an environment where it's fun for them and they have to want to do it because at some point it becomes a chore. There's no way they're going to want to pursue it. So we just try to make it fun. You know, me and Sadie are in there all the time and we're going to do it regardless if, the, if they are. And they just like to see their parents doing some things. So they jump in with us. But I would highly recommend all parents out there putting their kids in gymnastics and doing the research and finding a good gym. You know, that's not the easiest thing either. Search your area, ask some, you know, other parents, family members, uh, there are some incredible gyms in there out there, but there are also some really poor gyms. So you have to do some research and make sure that you're in a space where they're taking care of the kids and and doing a good job with that developmental side and not just pushing them to the competitive side too early. Hang on. We just we had shout out because we had three good gymnasts, Courtney Walker, Lisa Warren and Carl Powley at our gym for a long time. And I just want to just shout out that I learned so much from those three. So quick OG story. When Adrian Bosman was still working for us back in the dawn of time, he had occasion to acquire like a really nice competitive set of parallel bars. But because at that time, San Francisco CrossFit was outdoors, we couldn't leave them outside. So they were stored in our garage for, I don't know, five or six years or something until Adrian, you know, I wonder where I should ask Adrian what became of those. 
You can see but the MWOD was, videos. They're always Yeah, there. and a, a lot of our old original MWOD videos, you can see them in there. And But it was just a playground for our kids. I mean, they just were in there and they their friends were in there. And so it was just this like luck would have it that Adrian acquired this set of parallel bars that ended up in our garage. But it just became this awesome playground for our kids and their friends. I love it. And they're probably like 3,000 pounds. You're probably not moving them. It's like, this is where they live no. now, you know? <laughs> no, I, yeah, I'm I mean, once, once, yeah, once they were in our garage, they were there for years. So well, it's good to so, see anyway. Boz putting parallel bars back into the games for the first time <laughs> hopefully the first of many new events that that rely on parallel bars i love seeing it yeah it was really cool to see that hey um what are you working on currently where can people what are you find looking forward you? to looking forward to um our app is our big new thing you know we've been putting a ton of time our in-person events uh, have been why most people come to us and we want to create a digital experience for most of the, for a lot of the people that can't attend with us in person so our power monkey training app was just released about a month and a half ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, a long process to be able to get it. I'm sure you understand what it takes to uh, not only uh, labor, but the financial aspect and and uh, finding developers, all those fun things. But we are excited where it's at right now. Uh, people can find it on our website, powermonkeytraining.com. If you want skill development, we have tons of skills on the gymnastics side. Also volume plans in there for the competitive athletes that are looking to go from one to five to 10 to 20 unbroken muscle ups. We have a plan in there build volume around the skills. We have a core workout every single day to help build that foundation around a good core. And then we have a general GPP gymnastics program that we call monkey method that builds a well-rounded gymnastics approach that can be applied into your regular standard programming. So it's a really good place to, to be able to work with us. And besides on your website, which we will of course put in the show notes, where can people find you and your team on the social media universe? Uh, on Instagram at Power Monkey Fitness and at Dave Durante. We're always putting up good teaching and technical content on there on a regular basis. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Dave. Dave, it's such a pleasure. Of course. I appreciate it, guys. I love being in the Bay Area. Hopefully I can come, come down there soon and maybe bring you over to Stanford and hang out in the gym a little bit. Deal. We'd love to. I don't know. As a Cal Bear, I don't know. If yeah, they may not let me in. <laughs> make, an exception. make an exception. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.